Good morning, church. We are in this week of Christmas. Can you believe it? We're here. The, the Sunday before, the, the last Sunday of Advent. We're going to talk about the joy of waiting. And I know we've talked a lot about waiting. We've talked a lot about joy. But uh, Advent is waiting. And so we're going to dive into it a little bit deeper this morning. We're going to start in Isaiah 61. In verse 1, it begins, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. Well, the first half of that, the first verse, might be familiar to you. This is the verse that Jesus opened up to in the scrolls and, and read at the beginning of his public ministry. This was first given to the people who were returning to Zion, given as a promise from God that this was what God was going to do. And yet this has been a hopeful chapter for the people of God through all time, ever since. This idea of oil of gladness instead of mourning, this idea of a mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. These are the very things that we're desiring right now. And so this is the promise of God that we read in Isaiah. And since then, the people of God have waited. And that's what we're going to look at today. And we talked a little bit about waiting last week. You remember with, with cookies, how as the cookies are in the oven, you can smell it and anticipate and wait for them to be done, and that excitement that builds as we wait. And, well, this is something that happens with the promises of God, with the kingdom of God. And as people waited on Jesus, there were kind of three different postures that, that people mostly took. These Jewish believers waiting on their Messiah, they, they would wait, and then there'd be this extra thing kind of added on. And we're going to look at that today. There are people groups that, that you read about in the Gospels and the book of Acts. We're, we're going to talk about them, separate them out a little bit, because I think there's something for us in it if we'll take just a couple minutes to do it. So let me, let me define a couple groups real, well, as an oversimplification for us. So you've probably read, especially in the book of Acts, of the Sadducees, or even beyond them, of the Herodians. And both of these groups are Jewish groups. People who believed in the Messiah were waiting on the Messiah, but as they did that, they had aligned themselves to benefit from the system of Rome. So we know that the Jewish people were oppressed by the Romans. They were taxed heavily, especially the people in the region that Jesus was born into. And yet the Herodians and the Sadducees were people who benefited from this system. They held on to their faith, and yet they were okay getting wealthy off of this and, and got to a point of really believing that part of, of what God was doing was this very marriage of, of Rome and their benefit from that system and their faith as a Jew. Now we know later in church history that, that Rome took on Christianity as the official religion there and people continued to marry their faith to their nation, their faith to the government. There were quite a few times throughout church history 
where people of the church decided in, in some very big and profound ways that they wanted to give the role of the church to the government. They wanted the government to define and enforce morality. They wanted the government to, des to describe what it was like to live in this world and what was expected of us. They asked the government to care for the community and, and gave the responsibility to others. Where God had really instituted that for us to take on within ourselves. And particularly that that was done because, well, throughout all of time, as people waited on God's kingdom to come, many of us have taken the posture of benefiting from the system around us. Even if it cost other people things, we, we were able to go to a spot of marrying our faith to, to this benefit to the system and structure. And that's what the Sadducees did. That's what the Herodians did. And honestly, that's what many of us have done. Maybe not to the extreme that they have, but many of us have taken a, a posture of, okay, I'm, I'm going to benefit here. But not everybody in Jesus' day had that stance. Some others had the stance of, of what's called the Essians. And again, an oversimplification, avoiding a bunch of other things. The oversimplification is is that these people took their faith and withdrew from culture. And they went into the desert and they just went away. And they tried to separate from anything that was the world's. And, and we know this is something that people of the church have, have done for centuries. When Rome had that moment where they took on Christianity as, as their religion, we know that the monastic movement started. And people began to see like, no, I don't believe that the church should be elevated in the way that it's happening in Rome. And so people withdrew to the desert to go hear from God in that way. And there's some beauty in that moment. There's some beauty in that movement. There's this distancing and, and defining themselves outside of the way that, well, that the culture does. And yet often for the Essenes and often for the church, and for those of us who tend to have that posture, what happens is we end up withdrawing our presence. Not just withdrawing for a moment of Sabbath or rest with God, but we end up withdrawing our presence from the culture. We end up withdrawing our witness, and we end up withdrawing the promises that God has for all of our sisters and brothers that we don't yet know. There's a danger. There's a third posture that people have taken kind of throughout all time that I think we can see as well. This is one that was taken by the Pharisees and even beyond them by the zealots and again an oversimplification but they each of these groups knew what the kingdom of God was to look like and they knew that it didn't look like Rome and they knew that it did not look the way that the current church was operating and so well they they brought about God's kingdom at their own hand. They would use violence if violence is what they faced. They would use reform in any way that they can. And we know that this has happened throughout Scripture. Abraham, when he was still Abram, tried to bring about the kingdom in, in his own way, bring about God's promises by forcing it on Hagar. We know that Moses was tempted in this way to bring about God's deliverance. We know that this happened throughout the Old Testament, New, and throughout church history. Sadly, the church is filled with stories of people who would overthrow power that was ungodly only to lead in the same way that their predecessors did. 
often we, we see a space, a place where there is unjust and we, we respond by being unjust. And that's a posture that as we wait, many of us can sneak into because let's be honest, waiting is painful. Waiting is difficult. Waiting is costly. It's different for each one of us. Now when I list those three postures as we wait, we probably all have a preference. We all probably have a bent. One of the ways that we would most naturally go towards if we start getting anxious or impatient. And I think we can understand where people are coming from if we're just honest about it. But this waiting, I, I don't know that we realize because, you know, we can turn the pages of Scripture so quick. I don't think we realize how much people were really waiting. And between Malachi and Matthew, hundreds of years happened. Hundreds. Generations. With no prophet speaking. You probably know of Hanukkah and the Maccabees. Well, that happened in that time frame. But what we know of as scripture, God was silent. Doesn't mean that God wasn't moving. Doesn't mean that God wasn't stirring hearts and all of that. But the, the prophetic voice was missing. The Messiah was ached for, but people were waiting. And then if you think about it, then this angel appears to Mary. We know the story, this teenage woman and, and, and the angel meets her and says that you are going to carry Jesus. And I, I never I never grew up Catholic. I, I'm not really exposed to much Catholicism until later in life when when my faith has kind of taken shape. But I do understand somewhat the the seeing Mary is different. Like the fact that she carried that promise. It was for all of us since then. What an incredible woman to have carried this promise of God. And here's the thing, she didn't carry it for a page. We have an angel speaking to Mary, and then for what we know, about 40 weeks, she carried the promise within her belly as her body changed. And as she dealt with the ramifications of this, and as she waited for Jesus. And we have these verses that, that I love and I don't think we could ever read enough in Luke 2. It says, In those days a decree went out from Emperor Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration was taken while, Quirinus, <laughs> while the governor was in Syria. All went to their own towns to be registered, and Joseph also went from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was descended from the house and family of David. He went to be registered with Mary, to whom he was engaged, and they were expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There's so much going on in this. But by the end of of that little section of scripture, Mary has a baby, and not just any baby. She's holding Emmanuel, God with us. She's holding the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who's going to fulfill all that everyone is waiting for. 
And you know what she does? She waits. Because Jesus is a baby. Like a little, little baby that needs to like eat and go to the bathroom and sleep like 15 hours a day. Jesus needs to grow up. And so little newborn Jesus has to become little toddler Jesus. And then little elementary school-like Jesus. And then teenage Jesus. Imagine that. And all of these stages. She waits. Because as in a, a newborn, Jesus is the promise. Jesus is the, the coming kingdom. Jesus is God meeting. But, but it's not fully fulfilled. Because what well, Jesus is a newborn. And so Mary and everyone else, but they wait. At around 30, Jesus unrolls the scroll and reads Isaiah 61 and talks about the year of Jubilee and sight returning and prisoners going free and all of this. And everyone who hears it then, then waits. This is part of the challenge of the disciples, right? When, like we're seeing the beginning of it, but when is it all going to happen? When is the total fulfillment of your promise going to happen, Jesus? And they waited. And then he was crucified and they waited. Jesus rose from the dead and they were sure this is the moment where the kingdom of God is fully understood. Now we can finally act. Now we can live in this freedom. And you remember what Jesus tells them. He says, go and wait for the Holy Spirit. Go wait again. And they waited. And here we are in 2020, which feels like it's like 17 years long. And we're waiting and waiting and waiting. And it's no wonder that some of us are reaching for, hey, I'm just going to do the best I can within the system. Or some of us can't stay engaged, so we don't just withdraw to catch our breath and reminder of who Jesus is. But we begin to withdraw our presence, and no wonder some of us are just fighting to make God's kingdom come because we know, we know, we know that it's true. What is this waiting? There's a verse that we've read a lot together, but I think in the Christmas story and this desire for Emmanuel right now, I think it reads different. Second Peter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some would think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Maybe God isn't slow. Maybe this isn't a question of God's goodness. Maybe he's better than we knew. Because you see, if I'm somebody who can't imagine waiting longer and can't picture God's kingdom coming and so I just decide I'm, I'm going to benefit from this system, then, then those who are held back, well, they're hurting because of how I'm living out my faith. I'm not making room for them. And, and we see here that 
Well, the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. So if I marry myself to the to the governors like the Herodians or the Sadducees did, well, then I'm doing that at the expense of somebody. And well, God's too good for that. And so maybe he's got another invitation for me. If I'm somebody who imagines the best we've got is life after all this, so I'm going to withdraw myself. I'm going to withdraw my witness and withdraw my prophetic voice from being on the side of anybody else. I'm just going to go live quiet and alone. Then I've given up on anyone who doesn't yet know that they're my sister or my brother. Who hasn't yet realized that they're in the family. Who doesn't know that this promise is for them. And so I'm not living into what God has here. I'm not living into his slowness and his patience. Again, I'm just willing to rush everything to happen because I can't tolerate waiting. Or if I'm somebody who like the Pharisees or Zealots, who use anything I can to make God's kingdom come now and the fullness now and the promises be felt now because it hurts too much and it feels too scary to wait for tomorrow. Then I'm not leaving space for repentance. Not leaving space for God to move. And I would say all three of these postures are actually a bit of unbelief. We so desire the promise of God and we're afraid it's like fading away. I believe that Jesus is Emmanuel now. I got to spend time with my small group on Wednesday night talking about moments where we experience God meeting us in, in dark times. We know that God is with us. And we have those moments where God is with us. It's enough for us to keep hoping and, and as we hope to keep waiting and as we wait to anticipate with joy, knowing that God's promises haven't changed. And so this week is we wait for Christmas. If you feel a pull into one of these postures, maybe one that you've found familiar before or a brand new one, I want to invite you to see that as a gentle invitation to repent. Instead of withdrawing or instead of benefiting at the expense of someone else or instead of reaching for violence, your own understanding of justice, I invite you to press into God's promise. We know that God is with us. We know that we are his beloved and we know that he never forgets his promise. And it's not that he's late, it's that he's patient. Loving us, desiring all of us to come to him, desiring repentance.